Welcome to this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. I'm Ben Felder with The Oklahoman, and joining me as always is my colleague, Carmen Foreman. We're recording this on Thursday, February 24th. Uh, a couple of days of winter weather had shut down the Capitol, but we still saw some things happen earlier this week, uh, Carmen, that we'll get into today. But uh, right now, like most lawmakers, we are bunkered down at home with a couple inches of snow on the ground and a quiet state Capitol. That's yeah, kind of a nice change of pace in the middle of session. Yeah, definitely. After a, a few weeks into session, that kind of gives us a little bit of a chance to breathe, uh, but still plenty of stuff to follow. And the Capitol was open earlier this week, including on, on Monday and Tuesday. Uh, Monday, we saw public school advocates come for the Capitol. I think this is a, a week that's been designated as public school week, or public school advocacy week. Um, and then also, we talked last week in the podcast uh, about one of the big issues this year, which is the uh, the, the private school vouchers, or at least the, the vouchers that parents would be able to use if this legislation were passed for private school tuition, homeschool curriculum, uh, some other home-based education services as well. It's being uh, pushed in the Senate by uh, Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat. We talked last week about how uh, House Speaker Charles McCall had said at the start of session that it wasn't a bill that his, his caucus was interested in hearing. And we talked a little bit about the politics of that. Um, but those who are advocating for it haven't given up, and including some outside groups. Uh, McCall's taking some pressure from some of those groups, including a, a D.C. group that's um, kind of been uh, you know, advocating for this and hasn't given up. What, what have we seen this week? Yeah, so uh, the, like you said, the D.C.-based uh, uh, Club for Growth, it's a conservative-leaning group. Um, they've gotten involved in numerous Oklahoma elections, and we're although we're not quite at the election cycle part of this year yet, um, they seem to be taking on House Speaker Charles McCall because of his opposition to hearing this um, voucher bill in the House. Um, and once again, the voucher bill is called the Oklahoma Empowerment Act from Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat. And so basically the Club for Growth um, paid for $25,000 at least, they said one week's worth of ads in McCall's district, which is in Atoka and around Atoka. Um, and $25,000 worth of ads will buy you a fair amount in that part of the state. Um, and the Club for Growth also was sending out mailers to what what they described as, as approach school choice advocates in Charles McCall's district. And the mailers and the ads basically attack the speaker for saying he's not going to hear this bill and that encourages folks in his district to call his office and demand that he hear the Oklahoma Empowerment Act. Yeah, so here, so feeling some pressure from those groups, you know, I also, you know, noticed, uh, you know, the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs, a, a, a conservative think tank, they put out a bunch of articles and pieces on, on promoting school choice. In fact, one of the arguments that they made was that we were hearing from House members who are against the voucher bill saying, hey, we op- we already approved open transfer last year um, that uh, took away some of the barriers to transfer to other schools. Uh, there have been some reporting earlier this year that there hadn't been a lot of demand so far for that open transfer. I think only a, a few hundred students across the state have taken advantage. Uh, and I saw an article that OCPA put out saying, well, that's proof that we need this, that you keep saying that you did open transfer, but not many students are, are using it. So we need to take a go another step forward. Um, you know, there hasn't been any votes in the House. Obviously, the bill's still in the Senate. But has there been any indication from you? I mean, have you observed anything that makes you think that that pressure is getting to McCall or, or members of the House? 
Honestly, I don't necessarily think the pressure would get to McCall. Um, I think he, you know, he's been elected in his district numerous times, and I think he has a good pulse on what his constituents want him to do. Um, the only way I could really see the House changing course and maybe taking up this bill is if it were significantly amended. Um, let's say, you know, if it were limited to urban areas or if there were just um, something to put the rural lawmakers at ease, because what we saw last week when the Club for Growth was attacking Speaker McCall, you know, his rural colleagues in the House are coming out in his defense, basically saying, you know, our rural constituents do not want this. Yeah, I, you know, yesterday I spoke with, for another story, with Representative Danny Sterling, who's the chair of the Rural Caucus. And uh, we were talking about a variety of issues, our priority issues for rural members. And this was one, uh, objecting to this bill. And um, even after the pressure that McCall had been facing, I mean, he still, uh, Representative Sterling still sounded very resolute, said that his members of the rural caucus, especially in the House, were still adamantly opposed to this. And as we've talked about before, I mean, he said, hey, you know, public schools are the the cultural center of a lot of our communities. I mean, this is where, uh, you know, we go for ball games and theater performances and many people work at the school. They're often the biggest employers. And so as much as we've seen public schools kind of come under attack in recent years, and I think that's fair to say that we've seen that, um, especially from Republican legislatures across the country, um, public schools are still pretty popular, um, especially in rural communities. And that's one thing we saw. And we saw some of that popularity this week with public school advocates that came to the Capitol. And it's hard to judge based on just social media. But I did find it did seem like there were lots of lawmakers, um, both in the legislature and statewide members, as you know, obviously Superintendent Hoffmeister, Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne appeared at some of these events. Um, I even saw Matt Pinnell, I, well, he wasn't at an event, but the Lieutenant Governor kind of tweeted his support for public schools, talking about his kids going to public schools. So it, you know, while the, the charter or the voucher advocates may have gotten some wind with some of these ads, um, those that are opposed in public school space, I thought had a pretty good showing this week as well. I agree. But, um, you know, on the other side of things, you'll also notice that the governor is is going out and essentially doing a full court press trying to advocate for pro temp treats bill. I mean, I think I saw him on Fox Business maybe this week or last week, um, which I don't know why Fox Business is interested in charter school reform, but I, that's a whole nother question. Um, but on in the segment, Governor Stitt was talking about why he thinks Oklahoma needs this legislation to pass. You know, he's done, I think, at least one podcast interview to talk about it. And of, of course, you know, this is catering to a more conservative audience, not necessarily talking. I mean, he's talking to Oklahomans, but the more conservative leaning Oklahomans. Yeah. And we talked about in last week's episode about how, you know, this could just be a campaign issue that if uh, Stitt were to win re-election and that Ryan Walters, his education secretary, he's been, he's been pushing for this voucher bill. If he were to win the superintendent race, then maybe this gives them kind of a mandate uh, for next year to do something with. And who knows, like you said, maybe the bill gets tweaked and it does get a hearing in the House or it does, you know, some version of this does get passed. Um you know, we also talked about maybe this is a bargaining chip for McCall. It's a pretty big one, I, I think. I, I don't know that I would say that this would be a bargaining chip. Um, but it is interesting when you see the governor, um, you know, pushing for, uh, you know, legislation and to, to see so much resistance within his own party, um, you know, definitely is something that draws a lot of attention. Yeah, but it, and it's also interesting, too. I mean, if you just think about how government is set up to work, 
And a lot of people, you know, maybe don't understand this, but like big reforms are not intended to pass in in mm-hmm. one year at the legislature. I mean, let's just look at what the legislature's been trying to do on medical marijuana reforms. It's taken years for them to do much of anything. And now they say that they're really committed to reforming Oklahoma's medical mar- marijuana laws. But, you know, the, the state question passed more than three years ago. So to push such a big school reform in one year would be I mean, that would be quite a feat. And I think that's part of what McCall's argument is in all of this, is that basically we need more discussion on such a big change. Yeah, and you're exactly right. So maybe this is, you know, go big, take small steps as a compromise and then build on it in the years to come. Um, But it doesn't seem like the the pro-voucher group is giving up yet. So we're continuing to see them fight for that. And it'll be interesting to see if if they are able to make some headway in in the weeks to come. Something else that we saw earlier this week is we saw the advancements of several abortion bills in the Senate. Carmen, you reported on that and we're in the the Senate committee hearing. So, you know, what do we see on on the anti-abortion front? Yeah, it, it doesn't really come as any surprise. I mean, Oklahoma, since Republicans took control of the state and the state legislature have pretty much every year pushed back um, and, and introduced anti-abortion bills. Um, this year, the biggie or a couple of the biggies are, you know, there are several bills that want to copy the uh, restrictive abortion law down in Texas. Um, that's the one that um, prohibits most abortions after a quote unquote fetal heartbeat is detected that can usually be detected around six weeks. That's really early into a pregnancy. A woman may not know she's pregnant at six weeks. Um, and then in conjunction with that, in copying the Texas law, we'll see these bills that basically um, empower uh, individuals to um, essentially rat out or report on folks who perform an abortion for a woman after that six week period or after that fetal heartbeat is detected or who helps a woman in some way, whether it's a financial helping or whether it's um, finding them a doctor to get an abortion after that cutoff period. Um, So a bill like that advanced in the Senate this week, that's from uh, Senator Julie Daniels. There's a companion bill in the House, Um, but uh, reproductive rights groups are really sounding the alarm on that, as well as a bill from Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat that would uh, prohibit abortions uh, 30 days after this start of a woman's last menstrual cycle. Um, so whereas this, the quote unquote heartbeat bill would seem to um, halt most abortions after about 60 days, um, Treat's bill would limit most abortions after 30 days. And again, that's, that's very early in a pregnancy. Women with, um, I guess, unpredictable menstrual cycles may not know that they're pregnant 30 days in. But, you know, as the Senate pro tem, that that bill is going to get a lot of traction and is very likely to pass. And if it does pass and get signed into law, it's, I would say it's ripe for a lawsuit. Yeah. But, you know, when that when that's, that committee meeting was taking place earlier this week, I think it was, well, it was Monday or Tuesday. I can't remember which day, um, but it was uh, it was. The committee room outside, I noticed that the that there was a heavy law enforcement presence and that they had kind of roped off an area and they were kind of prepared for protesters. And the thing that was striking to me is I didn't see any. Um, I'm not saying there weren't any in the building, but at least right outside the chamber, um, you know, there weren't protesters on either side of this issue. And we have seen some some 
demonstrations this year, but it doesn't seem like we've seen maybe as much as we've seen in past years. And I almost wonder if there's just kind of this feeling, you know, obviously not just in Oklahoma, but across the country that with the recent changes on the Supreme Court, it seems like we're kind of, at least it feels like we're headed towards reality where Roe v. Wade will be struck down and that states like Oklahoma will be able to abolish abortion um, because of the makeup of their legislature. Does it feel like that's just kind of I don't know. Am I am I wrong in my, what I've observed? It just seems like there's been a little bit less advocacy on either side. There's been some, but it just kind of feels like, you know, we're kind of headed to that. And, and who knows what the Supreme Court will ultimately rule? Um, obviously, we're guessing based on the current makeup of the court and some of the, and the recent changes. But um, it just feels like that's kind of where we're where we're headed. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, there definitely seems to be sort of a defeated feeling among um, reproductive rights groups and abortion providers. Um, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say that they're like giving up entirely. Yeah. I mean, they're still, you know, criticizing these bills and, and hoping they don't pass, but there's already talk of like, you know, if, if Roe v. Wade falls, you know, trying to get women to, to states that will still have abortions, um, and, and trying to provide resources for that. Um, and, and there's, you know, like there usually is, there's talk of lawsuits, right? If these bills pass, um, because the court could, the Supreme Court could decide that the Roe v. question as a whole, or it could simply decide the question that Mississippi is sort of asking, which is, uh, can a state prohibit an abortion after 15 weeks? And so if if the court just rules on that, as opposed to the broader Roe v. Wade decision, then groups can still sue over, say, laws that would prohibit abortions after 30 days. Um, but I, I also going back to your point on, you know, sort of the roped off area in front of the committee, I don't think that was for, you know, people that are proponents of abortion. That was more for the, the abolitionist side of things. And I think that and that has also driven our Republican lawmakers to um, mm-hmm. file abortion bills that will limit severely limit abortions. Um you know, the abolitionists are on the side where they think basically all abortions should be outlawed um, in cases of rape, incest, um, even saving the life of the mother. They don't believe any abortion should ever be performed. And, you know, our Republican state leaders, namely Greg Treat, has basically said, you know, that's in, unfeasible while Roe v. Wade is still the law of the land. Um, if we did that, we'd basically be seceding from the union. But I think those people, the abolitionists, have put pressure on people like Greg Treat to show that they're doing something on the anti-abortion front. Yeah, we've. De- I think you know you make a great point that when in recent years, m- the most protesters we've seen on this issue have been on the anti-abortion side. Not to say that we haven't seen uh, pro-abortion right advocates at the Capitol. We have, but um, they just seem to be the loudest and, and mobilized the most. Um, and often a lot of children in the crowd. And so I don't know if these are like just, you know, homeschool families, a lot of them that have the ability to come up to the Capitol during the day. I mean, they, they have been loud and vocal. And in years past, um, there's been a lot of criticism towards Republican leaders. It's been interesting to see in the state where most, you know, where the Republican legislature is almost uniformly against abortion, there still has been some friction between like you said, the abolitionists and and Republican leaders who've said, yes, we're against abortion too, but, you know, there's a constitutional way to do this um, and even an ethical way to do this. I think there even are still some Republican members that would say, hey, there are some valid exceptions and it'll be interesting to see what the legislature, if what exceptions, if any, this legislature is willing to grant if Roe v. Wade were to be struck down. 
Yeah, it, it even in Julie Daniels's bill that um, you know the so-called copycat bill from Texas. I mean, she basically says, you know, okay, so um, private citizens can attempt to sue people who aid and abet a woman getting an abortion after this specified cutoff period, but w- the women themselves, the woman seeking an abortion, cannot be sued. So, you know, there's still some protections for women, um, especially, you know if it is to save their own lives um, and get an abortion. So it is interesting to see, and it is interesting to wonder how much of those will remain if some of this uh, legislation moves forward. Yeah, we'll definitely keep watching that as we move forward in the session. You know, another thing that we saw earlier this week was the Board of Equalization, Equalization met um, to certify uh, kind of the final budget numbers, or at least the, the budget numbers that the legislature can use to put together a budget for fiscal year. Uh, 2023. They met in December to kind of give, you know, what what they think the numbers will be. And then in February is, is kind of the last time they meet it. They'll meet it again in June, but the budget will be done by then. Um, so this is a chance for them to say, okay, here's the money that you're going to have to work with in the legislature. And not too surprising that the legislature will have about 10.5, a little under 10.5 billion to work with. Um, you know, that's a state record. So, you know, revenues are increasing from the previous year. Um, that does include about 1.3 billion in one-time funds. So those are carryover funds that, you know, lawmakers have said, hey, if we if we use that money, that can't be for recurring expenses. It have to be things for like one-time costs, like infrastructure and that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, but the legislature has more money to work with this year. Um, the one thing that was interesting to me in talking to the budget uh, chairman for the House and the Senate right after the meeting, they continued to say they want a relatively flat budget this year. They continue to say they want to put more money into the state savings account, the rainy day fund, which is already at $2.5 billion. Um, and uh, Chairman Wallace of the House said that he wants to maybe put as much as $600 or $700 million more into the rainy day fund to continue to, to boost that up. Um, there's been some talk of some increases and in state trooper pay increases and, and maybe some increases for some state agencies. But um, despite the budget numbers we saw this week, we still haven't got a sense that this year's budget is going to be uh, a, a huge increase in spending from what we saw last year. Do you get the sense, though, that even like even though the budget chairs have said publicly, you know, we want to have a flat budget and we don't anticipate spending a bunch more, that they're still getting lobbied, you know, behind the scenes for, you know, from various agencies saying, oh, we need a little extra funding here for this, or we need a little extra funding here for for that. Oh, definitely. And, uh, you know, one thing that Wallace said was that when you add up all the agency requests that have been made, you know, the state agencies make their proposed, their budget proposals, um, you know, before the session, um, and those are those proposals are being worked on by subcommittees. Um, it's six hundred and fifty-eight million dollars more than what was budgeted last year. Um, so there is enough money, I suppose, to give the agencies what they want, but not if you take into consideration uh, maybe some of the tax cuts that will get approved, or maybe some uh, state employee pay raises, like I said, like with with uh, with troopers that might be approved. Um, and some other things. So um, they've still been pretty consistent. I, I, it's still pretty early in the budget uh, in the budget, you know, negotiations, the game. Um, Tuesday was the Board of Equalization meeting. And later that day, um, Roger Thompson, uh, budget chair of the Senate and Chairman Wallace, were going to be meeting with Stitt's uh, people for only the second time, um, they, have, they have a standing meeting every Tuesday, but that was only going to be their second time to meet this week. So we're still very early in the budget negotiations and things could definitely change. 
Um, you know, one thing that was interesting in talking to Chairman Wallace after the meeting, um, it was the first time I had a chance to talk with him since I wrote a, a kind of a big story a couple of weeks ago about kind of the budget process that kind of looked at, you know, there are some that see it as a very um, secretive process or that lacks transparency. Um, I talked with Wallace for the story and in the story, he said that he thought that it was a pretty transparent process. And he reiterated that again to me and kind of took exception to the story um, a little bit, actually called it an opinion piece. So he wasn't too happy with the story, but he said, you know, we are, you know, we're, we're meeting with, you know, our subcommittee members are meeting with, with state agency leaders. That process is taking place right now. You know, uh, we're going to have conversations. So even though, Thompson and Wallace have been pretty clear on what they'd like to see the budget look like this year in terms of the amount of spending. Um, he also reiterated that no dis, no major decisions have been made. Now you can believe that or not, but um, but we're, we probably there probably are going to be some things in this budget that we're not that we're not aware of right now. That by the end of the session we're going to be talking about, and that's just how how it always happens. So, you know, the session is very long, and new things come up and things change, and sometimes the biggest proposals are kind of kept secretive. Um, by legislative leaders until the the closing weeks. Um, so I do expect that there'll be some aspects of the budget that we talk about in May that we're not talking about now or necessarily on our radar. But, you know, from what we've heard from legislative leaders, I don't think we can expect, you know, these huge uh, investments to be made in state agency to over what we've seen in previous years, on the previous yeah. year. Yeah, speaking of, you know, things being kept under wraps until the end, I do remember last year when the budget came out uh, or they announced the budget proposal and there was the 50 million, uh, the increase for the Oklahoma Opportunity Scholarship. Am I saying that right, Ben? Uh, I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, and that was just like not something that had really been talked about all session. And then boom, it was just like this huge increase in the budget for it. So you're not wrong. I mean, there could be surprises later this session. Well, and I think where the criticism comes for the lack of transparency, um, and I think where, where I think Wallace is right, is that, I mean, the state agencies did in a public setting, you know, make their budget proposals, and you get a chance to see these subcommittee leaders and members ask questions. So there is kind of a transparent process right now. But I think where the, critic the valid criticism comes of a lack of transparency is that the budget is usually, a pro budget proposal is usually made with just days to spare. And the legislature only has a few days to vote on it. And by that point, you really have to pick your battles, right? And you, you know, one, you have to, you know, you're at the end of session, you're ready to go home. If you're a member, you know, do you want to fight the budget? Um, and then two, can you whip up enough of your colleagues to, um, you know, defeat a, a budget because you disagree with it? So um, I think that's where the valid criticism comes in the lack of transparency. We often see a proposal with just a few days to spare, and I would expect that to be the same this year. And so I think if you are looking at something, you know, an addition to the budget that might be somewhat controversial or might normally bring a lot of debate, uh, as a legislative leader, politically, you're probably wise to keep that close to the vest. Um, and and revealed at the end because you're probably gonna you're probably not gonna face as much debate as you would if you were to say make the proposal in March. Um, so we've got the final budget numbers. We'll see uh, you know where budget negotiations go from here. You know one final thing I wanted to talk about uh, the story that I'm working on for the next few days is also taking a look at something that's been a pretty big topic in recent years in Oklahoma and that's criminal justice reform bills. Um, you know, obviously, a few years ago, uh, voters took some major steps um, in approving uh, some uh, uh, reclassifications for crimes, uh, increased the the uh, uh, property value threshold for felonies from five hundred to a thousand dollars. 
uh, reclassified some nonviolent uh, drug offenses that led to um, a lot of uh, hundreds of commutations. We saw the governor in his first year approve hundreds of commutations. So there's been this big push towards criminal justice reform, but it seems like in recent years that that effort has kind of slowed down a little bit. We've seen members of the legislature that have said we've gone too far and are maybe trying to cut back on some of those changes. Um, and one thing that was interesting earlier this week, Carmen, you and I had a chance to uh, meet with uh, some representatives from a national organization called Right on Crime, which is a conservative group advocating for criminal justice reform. And their leader told us that even the phrase criminal justice reform is kind of becoming taboo in some conservative circles. And they're having to fight with their own members, or at least uh, debate with their own members about this perception that crime is on the rise. Um, or that uh, we've gone too far in this area, but yet there's more work to be done. So uh, a story that I'm working on for the next few days is taking a look at the, a few criminal justice reform bills that are still making their way through the, the legislature this year. Um, two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate, were approved last week. Um, one, uh, I don't have my notes in front of me, so I'm trying to remember now off the top of my head, but one reclassified some felony sentencing, so it would reduce some sentencing, and another would automate the expungement process. So for some nonviolent offenses, when, um, when you know, essentially when your year is past the offense, as an individual, you can, you can apply to have your record expunged, but it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of money. Um, a lot of people don't have the resources to do it or even know that they can. And so this would automate that process for you. Both those bills passed through committee by with wide support. So we're still seeing some um, some early signs of support for criminal justice reform bills, even though the idea, at least nationally amongst conservatives, um, is maybe been cooled a bit. Well, I mean, I kind of understand that, right? Like after uh, George Floyd and mm -hmm. all some of these highly publicized um, cases that sparked an outcry across the country. There was this whole movement to quote unquote defund the police. And it, you know, I haven't seen that really succeed in a lot of places. And even, you know, say like in Norman where people have said, oh, they defunded the police. The police is still funded. There's still money there for the police. But I could see why in an election year, conservatives might be a little gun shy to venture down the criminal justice reform path because they might fear that it takes them too close to looking like they're, you know, tying the hands of law enforcement, tying the hands of police um, when, you know, their base ultimately is very supportive of law enforcement, police, funding for those, all of those things. Yeah. You know, I spoke with a representative from Southeast Oklahoma this week um, who has proposed a bill, Representative Jim Grego, a Republican who's proposed a bill that would uh, lower the threshold of methamphetamine possession. Um, so, you know, basically would, you know, would make the, the penalty more strict. Um, and he was, and I asked him, I said, are, are you hearing from your constituents that we need to do more on criminal justice reform? And he said, no, I'm hearing the opposite. I, I think people, I don't hear people saying we're locking up too many people. I hear people saying we're not locking up enough people. Um, so there are still some pockets of the state where this tough on crime rhetoric is still pretty strong. Um, and you're seeing that with some of the bills that have been filed. Um, you know, it's one of the things that was interesting in doing some research for the story. I found a story from the Oklahoma from 1994 during the gubernatorial race um, when uh, uh, there were three main candidates, including Frank Keaton, who, who ultimately won. Um, and the story I read was about how all three were trying to compete with each other to see who could be the toughest. On, on crime. And, uh, and Governor Keating, a candidate at the time, said, you know, I will never allow someone to get out of prison early. Um, 
you know, even if our prisons are overcrowded, I'll just never do it. And um, it was just kind of language that you, that you, you haven't heard a lot of these days and in, in recent years. Um, but one thing he also said, or one of the candidates said in the story was, we've been listening to the social scientists too much who say that crime is a societal issue and really it's just because people have evil hearts. At least that's I'm paraphrasing the quote there um, that this one candidate said. And I know that I've heard that extreme of language, but I am hearing some lawmakers start to say that again, like, you know, we're, we're, we've been listening too much to the social scientists. You know, prison is still, a, you know, our, our best bet when we're fighting crime. Um and it'll be interesting to see what the criminal justice reform conversation looks like in the coming years and in the coming months, as you're right, this is an election year and that's definitely going to impact the debate. Do you, I mean, do you feel like, as you've said before, that the, the criminal justice reform in Oklahoma specifically has kind of petered out in recent years? Do you think there is enough energy for something big to happen this year or do you think it'll take a while? Well, I've often said that I think, and, and I hear this from, from advocates that the the low hanging fruit has already been picked, and that's you know not to say that like uh, uh, sentencing reform and some of the other major assault was easy. You know, it's probably not fair to call it low hanging fruit, um, but some of the easier reforms have been achieved, and now we're getting to the point where um, it's a harder lift, it's a harder ask, and I think voters and lawmakers will say, "All right, we did it. Now where are the results?" Right. Um, and there is this rhetoric that crime is on the rise. And there are some types of crime that have increased nationally um, in recent years. Um, and there's been some you know, reasons for that, some related to the pandemic. But overall, violent crime is still on the decline in Oklahoma. Um, but that's not the rhetoric that we hear. And so I think it's hard for some to say, hey, we passed all these reforms, but yet we're seeing crime go up. Maybe we went too far. Um, and I think a lot of the things that we have to do now are harder. And one thing, oh, an interesting comment that was made in a city, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee meeting from a couple of weeks ago was uh, Senator Mary Bourne, a Democrat from Norman. Um, she said, listen, the work we have to do now when we start taking a look at sentencing that we need to reform and change, it's going to we're not going to feel comfortable. Like it's going to be hard for us to do that because it, it never feels right or it doesn't often feel right for us to lessen a punishment. Uh, for a crime, especially when you think about there being a victim involved. But she said, you know, the status quo hasn't been working, so we have to do something and, and it's just going to be hard work. So I, I I do think that the that the work on the criminal justice reform uh, effort is harder now. I also think it's more complicated now. And the legislature doesn't sometimes do complicated very well. <laughs> I mean, nobody does, right? Voters don't do complicated very well. I mean, people yeah. want something that sounds easy. And I think from a few years ago, the poster child for the reforms we saw was often was often, you know, women who were in prison um, because of drug offenses. And it was easier to say, listen, do we really want to punish not just women, men and women, but especially women who have an addiction and who made a mistake, um, but don't necessarily deserve to be in jail, especially when you think of the impact that has on their family and their community. That wasn't as complicated a message to receive, and it was embraced by voters, it was embraced by the legislature, and it was embraced by the governor. But now we're starting to get to some to a point where it is a little bit more complicated, and I think it's always the more complicated things are, um, the, the you know the harder it is to um, relay that message. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. What was it? State question eight hundred five that was on the ballot uh, mm -hmm. in twenty twenty. I mean. 
this is my personal hunch, but I think that was so confusing that it, I don't know that Oklahomans support that state question or what it was trying to do, but I think the criminal justice element of it was so confusing that average Oklahomans could not easily understand it. And so their inclination was to vote against it. So things have just gotten complicated. Yeah. And we were hearing from the law enforcement community that they were against it. And I think this is still a state where uh, a, a lot of um, deference is given to the law enforcement community. Um, and we saw, you know, some in law enforcement several years ago that were in favor, spoke out in favor of some of these measures. Um, but now we're not hearing that quite as much. Um, and I think when a sheriff or a prosecutor says that, you know, this bill would be bad for crime, it's going to be hard for, for some lawmakers to go against that word, um, especially in election year. I think that's the cloud. As we've talked about, that's the cloud over almost everything that's going to happen at the Capitol this spring. Um, and that's definitely true uh, with criminal justice reform legislation. Uh, well, Carmen, here as we wrap up, I'm just kind of curious. Um, I know you're finishing up some stories for the weekend and the week's not over. But um, when you look at next week at the Capitol, assuming that we do get together, that the weather is a little better, um, any any particular issues that you're going to be following or paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, one, I think next week is going to be hectic because a lot of the stuff that got canceled this week will now roll over to next week. Um, I think in light of the news we saw out of Texas this week, um, where um, basically AG Ken Paxton, he issued an opinion saying that, you know, um, gender reassignment surgeries and for trans kids are basically akin to child abuse. And we saw uh, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas also kind of double down on that and say that they're, they're gonna try to empower child protective services to um, crack down on families, uh, parents that are allowing their kids to undergo hormone therapy or um, gender reassignment surgery or consult with doctors about gender reassignment surgery. You know, we're seeing some of that here in Oklahoma. There's a bill that was supposed to be heard this week and I presume will be heard next week, but would prevent doctors from performing gender reassignment surgeries on minors um, and also could result in disciplinary action for doctors that do perform those surgeries. Um, I think it boils down to a culture war type issue, um, but it certainly LGBTQ plus folks are very concerned about legislation such as that, and they're concerned about what they saw in Texas uh, this yeah. week. Well, as much as we don't like, say we don't like Texas, we often follow their lead in a lot of things when it comes to policy. So I think you're right to say if something that big or something that got that kind of attention down in Texas uh, kind of has a ripple effect up to here. And um, and yeah, there has been a lot of talk around some of those, those bills. And you're right, this is kind of part of a current culture war that's been ongoing, but seems to kind of really reinvigorated itself. Um, in, in recent months. So, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. You can find this and every other episode by subscribing to Political State on your favorite podcast app. Um, for more of the Oklahomans journalism, uh, you can find us at oklahoman.com. I know we've had some specials, subscription specials going on this week. I think a, a two Tuesday special that was going on is already over. It might be over by this point, but I guarantee you there's a special to be found um, for first time subscribers. And I also have a link to subscribe in my Twitter feed at Felder underscore OKC. So with Carmen Foreman, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening and we'll be back with you next week.